You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Unlike the song of a similar title, the Motel California isn't a lovely place. A fact that podcaster Jimmy Doubts learns the hard way when he's framed for the murder of an outlaw country artist hell-bent on distancing himself from his past. Jimmy's podcasting partner, Farrah Graham, faces her own struggles as a patent troll looks to put an end to their uncorking murder podcast unless some outrageous demands can be met. The stakes couldn't be higher as Jimmy races against the clock to prove his innocence, and Farrah fights for their future in Michael Carlin's new comedic mystery, Motel California. Identical twin detectives who relentlessly argue about glam rock, a sociopathic cowboy with an axe to grind, an adult film actress running away from the biz, and a mob boss addicted to home improvement television round out the colorful cast of Motel California, a tale that could only be told in the backdrop of a city as colorful as L.A. Readers who appreciate the vibrant characters of Carl Hyacin, the wit of Jonathan Tropper, and the humor of both should check into Motel California, available wherever books are sold online. You can learn more about Motel California and all of Michael Carlin's other novels at michaelcarlinauthor.com. And now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Uncorking a Story podcast. I'm your host, Michael Carlin, and today I'm excited to share with you my recent conversation with New York Times bestselling author, Lou Aronica. You know, years ago I was given advice by Brian Grazer of Imagine Entertainment to seek out everyone I could find who was successful in my field of interest and ask to have a conversation with them. Now, perhaps I'm exaggerating a bit here because this wasn't the result of a conversation I had with Brian, but rather advice he gave to millions of other readers in his book, A Curious Mind, Secrets to a Better Life. Nevertheless, I'm taking a page from that playbook as I embark on my own career as a novelist and recently sat down to pick Lou's brain about his career as a writer. While doing so, I learned that we have some things in common. For example, we have a shared love of music, though he's more of a Les Paul guy, and I am more of a Strat kind of fella. We also have a passion for storytelling and a love of family, because we both love being dads. Now, of course, there are some big differences between me and Lou. I mean, he's a New York Times bestselling author, and my greatest claim to fame is that my first book, Return to Casa Grande, placed third in a humor contest. But I'll point out he does have a few decades of experience on me. If you want to know what makes authors tick, I think you'll enjoy this interview with Lou, and be sure to stay tuned to the end where you can hear Lou's latest single, Words and Music, or the aforementioned Les Paul he received from his wife and kids for his recent milestone birthday makes its recording debut. You can learn more about Lou Aronica at louaronica.com, and be sure to subscribe to the Uncorking Story podcast at iTunes, the Google Play Store, and iHeartRadio. To stay up to date with my work, Sign up for my mailing list at michaelcarlinauthor.com. And now, ladies and gentlemen, my interview with New York Times bestselling author, Lou Aronica. 
here. I, did, you just got a Les Paul? I did just get a Les Paul. Uh, tell me about that, because I, uh, I've always wanted one. Oh, God. Well, it's so me, too. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the, the, I, I actually sort of jokingly said to the, to the kids years ago as I was coming up on a big birthday, I said, you know, the only thing I want is a Les Paul. And I didn't even think they were paying attention, you know. They were just sort of, you know, we're, we're, you know, they would hear me and it's like, oh, yeah, Les Paul, right? And I wasn't even sure that they were registering what a Les Paul was. <laughs> right. Um, and then <laughs> I had the birthday at the beginning of January, and there's this huge box. You yeah. Know, come, come home to this huge box. And then it was a, uh, a 2007 original uh, Les Paul robot guitar. Which was 2007 was the first year that they made um, they made this guitar that tunes itself. Yeah, um, which is pretty cool in and of itself. But what a ridiculous difference! I mean, you know, I was playing. Yeah, you know, I don't really play guitar. Yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I love guitar, but I don't really play it particularly well. Um, so I, you know, I just bought this, you know, cheap guitar that I had to play guitar parts in in the songs I was recording. Yeah, and, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I'm thinking, you know, guitar is a guitar. You know, of course I understand that, you know, the Stratocaster and, and Les Paul are a completely different league, but, you know, I don't need to play in that league. And I, I plug this thing in, and it sounds totally different. <laughs> right. You can tell. I mean, the, the pickups oh, and the... Uh, uh, everything about it. Yeah. Right? And, you know, it was interesting because, it, you know, it was, it was funny because I was using the same software to process, but suddenly the software was way more responsive than it had been because... You know, there it was. It was actually, you know, there was actually something for, for the, the software to react to. Yeah, I mean, you definitely get get what you pay for with with any kind of musical instrument. Yes, I mean, that, that piano, you know, mm-hmm. sounds a lot different than, you know, my mother's upright chickering that right. she had, <laughs> sure. you know, for 60 years before, right. you know, she couldn't she couldn't house anymore. So when did, when did you start playing music and writing music? Oh, I mean, that was actually the thing I was supposed to do with my life. I was supposed to be a... a Rock musician. Well, let's. Uh, well, why don't we start there? Like when, because I mean, obviously you you are an author, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but it, it wasn't always going to be. You, you didn't have a grand plan to to be an author. Well, you know, they came. It was like one A and one B. You know, I, I you know the, the music thing hit me first. I always loved music. I mean, my I was born on Elvis Presley's birthday, and and my sister was a huge rock and roll fan back when. Elvis Presley was a huge star. Was she older sister or younger sister? Older sister. Okay. And so she, uh, actually, she's uh, 13 years older than I am, and she uh, was always playing rock music in the house. So I think that just, and you know, back then that was not as common, obviously, as it is now. And so I think it just imprinted, you know, and like music really drove me, right, from from a super young age. So when I, and I, and I knew being creative was a thing that had to be important to me that I, you know that I just loved the idea of making stuff and creating stuff and and wanting to express myself that way and the first thought was well of course I'll do it with music and I had this this you know this old keyboard that I, I bought and and you know and played in bands you know playing Beatles songs and things like that and and then you know about Two years after I started playing, I mean, you know, before I learned, you know, two years after I learned how to make a chord for the first time, I just started writing. And that became my primary form of, of expression because writing prose seemed a whole lot harder. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and it is. And what I found um, with the with the prose stuff was that it really didn't click in that I could that I could write that I had that skill until a teacher uh, actually pointed it out to me. Um, How old were you at that time when when you when when it, when that kind of clicked for you? That clicked. I was probably. 15 at that point. The, okay. the music thing was probably around around 13. All right. Um, it wasn't probably. It was exactly around 13. Um, and but the uh, but the the writing thing, it really was one of these things where, you know, a, a teacher at, at school said, you know, I, I think you might want to try using this more often, you know, and, and she put me on a project and, and and that sort of thing. And, and, you know, I found that I just had, you know, it was easy for me. The, the language came easy, easily for me. Putting words together came easily for me. And so where did, where did you grow up? Were you around here? Long, or? I grew up on Long Island. Long Island, okay. Yeah, so. And then um, what, what, did, what did your parents do for a living? Like what, what, was, their, what was their gig? My, um, my mother was a cashier in a grocery store, and my father was a uh, – he inspected – he was a highway inspector. So he would, he would, you know, he would like, go up to work crews and make sure that they were doing the job to code and that kind of thing. Pretty blue collar stuff. Very blue collar. Yeah. And it was, you know, it, I mean, my sister who is eight years older than I am was the first person in the entire extended family, including cousins and all of that to graduate college. Okay. So it was not, you know, we, we did not grow up in a lettered household. <laughs> I was, cause I'm, I'm curious, like what, what did your parents think when, when you kind of told them, and I don't know if you did tell them, but well, no, I'll I, assume I, that, I, that I you wanted to be a musician or a writer. The, the musician thing, they thought I was out of my mind, you know, because there was, you know, there was just no possible way in their minds that you could be successful at that. Um, which reminds me of a, a fun story about uh, about how um, you, many many years later, I, I, when Pandora came out, I, I connected with uh, with the guy who invented Pandora, and um, and he said that his primary goal for Pandora was to for kids to be able to tell their parents that they wanted they wanted to be musicians, and for the parents to say, yeah, that's a good middle class lifestyle. <laughs> But back then, back then, my parents definitely didn't think yeah. so. They thought it was it was crazy. And, and um, when I told them that I was starting to get interested in in writing, you know, their feeling was, "Oh, journalism." And I was like, "I'm not really talking about journalism, <laughs> but but sure, let's call it journalism." <laughs> Um, and that just sort of, you know, that was, that was the extent of the conversation because they really, you know, they, they weren't, they didn't come from a, a background where those kinds of things meant that much right. to them. Right. So, you know, they just sort of took my word for it yeah, and I did well in school. And so it was like, you know, oh, he'll, he'll figure it out. Right. But so it's really this teacher who kind of let the, well, it kind of showed you, yeah. encouraged you a little bit. That I could do it. I, that, that I could use it for anything. I really didn't think you could yeah um and i didn't even really i wasn't even really aware of the fact that i had the you know had that as a talent right you know i just thought that's the way people put words together that they just you know you sentences and the sentences had some kind of logic to them i didn't actually understand that that was a thing you know, right <laughs> there was value to, to that until until that point um but then once i i sort of started thinking about that then it became like oh wait a second this is another way to tell stories. It's another way to express how I'm feeling. It's another way to put myself out there in, you know, in a creative, in a creative way. So you, you eventually leave Long Island, go to college? 
I actually went to I went to I went commuted to college on Long Island, so I okay. didn't even leave. That. Didn't he? Didn't even leave the island of Long. Did not. Did not. Uh, almost not at all. In fact, I mean, you know, it just it, it was it's such a funny thing because I think you know this is you know this is the seventies, so it's a different time. But and you know, and and New York was so you know it, you know it, it was just. It was the the absolute you know bottom of the barrel for for, for New York. It was a, a time when the city was you know the city was going bankrupt, yeah. and there was then the crime rate was through the roof, and you know and and just everything was wrong. So you didn't go. You know when you grew up on Long Island, you didn't go into the city. And if you didn't go into the city, you weren't going anywhere because right. there was there's sort of no point. So um, so yeah, I, I essentially just stayed on Long Island and. Got my degree, and I and at that point, by the time I, I graduated college, I was or, or you know, I, I was thinking I would teach, you know, because that's what you did. You 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 got it. I ma- majored in English, and what you did with an English degree was you you taught English. Yeah, um, and I actually liked teaching and thought you know that could work. This actually could 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 work out fine because because teachers have the summer off, so I'll write my novel in the summer and I'll teach during the during the rest of the year and you know and then I can can do you know I can have a, a, a real career that my, my that my parents would would think was was solid and steady and and then I can I can still be a writer and play in bands on the weekends it's like the american dream yeah <laughs> yeah and absolutely none of that turned out the way it was supposed to. <laughs> so, so what happened? Like, you become a teacher, and I did not actually. That was the thing. I, I, um, I graduated in '79, and '79 was the oil crisis and the Iran, the, the, the Iran hostage crisis, and the economy was absolutely in the toilet, and there were zero teaching jobs. There were, I mean, 150 applicants for every open position kind of kind of situation I, and I couldn't get a job so the only other thing you could do with an English degree was go into book publish <laughs> so I thought okay well okay that seems to be the only other option so and I can and the scenario sort of plays out there too because because I can work in book publishing and learn about book publishing and then as I'm writing my book I'll be better equipped you know than than most people in in the business to to handle it once uh, once I finish. So you, you write that book in in the wealth of free time I'm sure you had yeah. as a first year. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Entry level book publishing guy. Uh, yeah, the book got written uh, twenty years later, <laughs> <laughs> and part of that part of that was that you know it was it was impossible. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the ridiculous thing about the book business for as as an entry level position is that it doesn't pay at all, and you work insane hours because you're constantly, you know, you, you, you have to work your whole work, work day and then you take home three manuscripts at night so that you can, you can read those and, and comment on them and that sort of thing. So the, at the beginning, I had no time. And then after that, I kind of fell in love with the book business. And at that point, I didn't really want to do anything else. Um, and it and it really just sort of put the whole writing thing on on hold for a chunk of time while I you know worked with writers and developed writers and you know and moved up the ranks in the publishing field. Did you did you feel like something was missing in your life during that time? I did, I did, I, I absolutely did. Um, I, I had you know a tiny outlet with music because I'd bought myself a an, you know an old four track deck. I mean it was new. It's it was, it was a new four track <laughs> deck. It's it's old now. 
um, you know, and, and you know, set up a home studio and that sort of thing. So I would do some recording down there, and and that gave me some sense of of an outlet. But by that point, the 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 script had flipped on me because then I felt like, well, a song's just a song. It's just you know a little three minute thing. A book is a book. You know, a, a book is a whole form of expression. And so at that point, I didn't, you know, I, I couldn't be satisfied with writing a song and recording it and, you know, and, and liking the way it sounded. You know, what I wanted was to, to create something much bigger than that. Um, but that was just not a realistic option. I mean, when I was, you know, running publishing houses, the last thing I could do was, you know, was set, you know, all of my time aside, you know, all my free time aside to, to write a book. And I, you know, I, had, I had a young family and, you know, I had other priorities, so I just sort of put it all on hold. Yeah, all those things kind of come into play. You know, it's good working. You know, trying to to manage your your day job, but then kind of at home responsibilities. Yeah. You know, as I there, there was a number of things that I, that I always say I'm going to handle. I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, fill in the blank, and right. then then you realize, oh my god, my kids actually need me more. Right now, now that they're older than they did when they were younger, which is yeah, an yeah. interesting dynamic. <laughs> well, it is, and actually, you know, one of the other things that I, I sort of, I, I sort of thought I understood was once I became a father, I loved being a father, and 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 being you know being you know a central part of my kids' life lives were were real was enormously important to me, and what I thought for a little while was. The, the desire to be creative was simply a way of making up for the fact that I wasn't a father, and that once I had been, once I became a father, it was like, nope, this is it. You know, you know, I've got, I've got a, a really good career, and I'm a father now, and pretty much I'm done. I, I, I've got, I've got what I need, and it really was fine like that for a really long right. time um, until. You know, it, it was it was, you know, it was it was such a funny thing. It, what, what really happened? This is such a bizarre way that it, it came about. Um, when I remarried, my wife and I were working with somebody to write our ceremony, and I wrote up I wrote my vows to my wife, shared them with the person who was working with us. Not with my wife at that point because. She was supposed to hear him for the first time sure. at the wedding. Keep a surprise there. Um, but this person read what I wrote, and she said, "Man, I, I, I wish somebody would write this for me." And I thought, "Well, okay. I mean, I was just being honest. <laughs> Obviously, this had more of an impact than I expected it to have. I thought it would just have an impact for me and Kelly." Um, and that thing, which happened now, this is, you know, 18 years after, um, the, after I started in the book business, um, that thing got me itching for it again. You know, it made me think, wow, you know, I actually can do something. I can do something other than write inter-office memos, you know, I can actually, I can actually maybe, you know, maybe use this as a, as a really meaningful form of expression. So that was the point where I started thinking, all right. Well, if I was if I'm going to write a novel, what would that novel be? Right. And started casting about for that, but I still didn't do anything about it. Um, and then, as luck would have it, and I use that term loosely, um, the company I was I was the publisher of Avon Books at that point, and the company was 
was bought by um, um, News Corp, uh, Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, Rupert Murdoch, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and even though we were wildly successful and having record profits and all that, they didn't seem to need somebody in my position anymore because they had one of those already. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, had a, I got a great golden parachute, and the first thing I thought was, you know, this is, this is, this is going to pay for me to write a book. Yeah. Um, and that's what it did. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny, you're mentioning, uh, you know, having kids and loving being a dad. I, I did... <laughs> When, when my kids were younger, um, you know, they're, they're, we have triplets, they're 15 now, but when they were younger, I used to uh, read them stories mm-hmm. every night before they went to bed. And my son, couldn't, he could never get enough. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I don't know how many times I read Harold on the Purple Crayon to him, <laughs> but it was a lot. And then I'm like, I got tired of reading that and Madeline and, and all the others. <laughs> so I just started making up stories yeah. for them. Yeah. And it was only recently, because <laughs> I, would, I would make up these stories about me and my brother. Mm. It was only recently that I admitted that they were complete fabrications. Like I just made them up, and they're, they're like to to this day they're like mad at me. They're like that story about Uncle Jimmy in the balloon. I can't believe you made that up. Like we believed in that. You lied to us. I'm like guys. I mean, it was a story about this balloon that, that he let go at school and it followed him home. And, oh. like, and they bought that. Huh? They bought it, but they bought it. Um, so so it, the the golden parachute. Mm-hmm. Um, Pays for the first book, or it, give, it gives you that kind of time. Right. What, right. what was the first book, and what was it about? Uh, the first book, well, here, I mean, this yet another um, you know, serpentine way of getting to these things. I, what I first thought I was going to do was my, my feeling, and I'd actually started to do this at Avon um, in the last year I was there. My feeling was that there were more good writers than there were good stories. That there, that a lot of writers, what what a lot of writers lacked was not the talent to write a really good book, but the structure for writing a really good book. That they didn't they didn't um, understand all of the sort of key commercial points and that sort of thing that were necessary to to write a book well. So, my first thought was at, when I left Avon was, what I'm going to do is is create the stories and then bring in talented writers to write those stories because then I can ha- I can I can put more stories out there and and you know and that's a better business for me and 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 that sort of thing. And so I did that with a uh, with a story and sold it based on the outline to um, to tour books. And then when it came time to bring in a writer to write it I couldn't do it. I couldn't let it go. Yeah. I, I actually fall in love with the story, so I so I had to write it myself. And it was not my intention. It really wasn't. I wasn't thinking. Okay, now I'm going to start my career as a novelist. I first was thinking I'm going to I'm going to create the sort of story factory that um, that will you know, you know generate lots of books. So that book was uh, was my novel, The Forever Year, which was the first novel that um, that was published. It was actually it's the first novel that I actually completed since. I um, since college, well, um, and um, and yeah, you know, and and you know, it was it was out there, and and you know, and that was an interesting experience. You know, being suddenly being on the other side of of the table, you know, after you know twenty years of publishing books, yeah, to suddenly be on the 
you know, on the other side. Now, do you feel like you had a little bit of an advantage there because you knew some more of the tricks of the trade, or or was that um, a disadvantage? It, I, actually, I think it was a, an enormous disadvantage, <laughs> and and here's the reason: because I had worked with enough problem writers over the years that I was committed to not being one. Yeah, you know, there were writers who just you know thought they knew better and and you know and and they wanted unrealistic things for their books and and that sort of thing. And I didn't want to be that guy. And I also didn't want to be because you know I'd been in the industry for so long. I didn't want to get a reputation for being a know-it-all. Like for for people saying, "Oh, he's too hard to work with because he thinks he knows better than all of us." So what I did instead was exactly the opposite. <laughs> Is that like undercompensating? Or? <laughs> I, did, I did exactly that, yes, undercompensating. That's the perfect term for it. I, I just said, I'm going to let them do whatever they think is right. And I'm not going to comment. You know, of course, if they ask me a question, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll make a contribution if I can, but I'm not going to impose myself. And I think that was a terrible mistake for a number of reasons. One, in, in, that, in that I think it was probably stupid of me to think that they could possibly know my book as well as I knew my book. And also that, you know, I, I had been in the business for a really long time. I, I you know, it was publisher of a, of a major publishing company. I, I, you know, there were things that I could have, could have said that might've been useful for the publication. Yeah. But I was, I was so absolutely committed to not becoming that guy that I just, Sat on the sidelines, and so did the book. <laughs> book sort of sat on the sidelines. Um, yeah, interestingly, I actually republished it years later, and it was a, it became a USA Today bestseller. But, yeah. uh, but in that initial uh, release, uh, it did not do particularly well. Yeah. What what, what genre is that in? Um, uh, I think that you would you broadly consider it women's fiction. It was a it was a relationship story. It was a uh, uh, there were sort of three intertwining stories. It was a father-son story, and a um, and a a story about um, uh, the the narrator and the a romantic relationship that he's in the middle of, but he doesn't believe that love can last, so he's keeping it all at a distance. And then the father's story of the great love of his life, which was actually the woman he was with before um, his uh, the the narrator's mother. Yeah, um, and those three stories intertwine and and will. Yeah, pay off. At the I end. mean, light reading, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> is that? I mean, is that? Do you like writing in that in that area? That I kind do. of more deep emotional type. I do. I actually love it. That's actually my favorite thing to do. Yeah, I, you know, because I, I just love writing about relationships. I just think that's the most interesting thing. You know, I mean, as a reader, the thing that I resonate with most is character. I don't. You know, I I can I can get through an entire novel that has no plot whatsoever as long as I care about the characters. Right. But I can't do the opposite. You know, I, it, unless it is a brilliantly plotted book, and there are very few of those. Right. right. Um, you know, if they're if the characters are, are terrible, I, I just can't. I can't go more than twenty pages. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I've always I've always loved that, and and it's always it, it was always the thing that I wanted to write about. I mean, even when I was I was a you know fifteen year old kid, I wrote my first novel when I was fifteen. It was about eight thousand words, um, and that was it was that was a relationship story. It, it just was was always my thing. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, to me, it's it's that's hard for me to to kind of write. I do like to read it because um, I am I'm sappy. I mean, <laughs> to the point where, um, you know, I, 
I'll admit to watching Hallmark Hall of Fame. <laughs> I mean, and as 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 just horrendous as some of those are, right, right. Um, you know, there there's something about those stories that every now and then you, you get one that's actually pretty yeah. pretty touching. Um, well, you know, to me that it's actually there was a an, an amazing piece that I reference regularly in the in the Times Book Review, probably 25 years ago now by John Irving. Um, in defense of sentimentality. And what John Irving was saying in that piece is we all have sentimental experiences. The difference between writing it well and writing it badly is the level of honesty that you bring to the story. If you write it honestly, then then sentimentality is justified. If you know, if you and the, and the problem with a lot of those Hallmark shows is that they it's it's totally fabricated. You know, they throw two people in a situation where, of course, it's going to be highly dramatic, and you know, and and you know, you know, pull out every emotion that you can. That's not good. You know, that's yeah. not good storytelling. It's not good writing. Um, you know, one of the things. I mean, you know, I, I like lots of people. Last night, I, I watched the. Uh, the latest episode of, of This Is Us, and I think one of the things... I, I had to turn it off. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, I was way too close to home in some of those situations. Yeah. But. No, it's, it's, it, um, but I think what they're doing there is just, is just tremendous yeah. because they're cutting right through to real emotion. And when you do that, you know, there's, very, there's very little that's better than that because it, there's very little that's more universal than that. Yeah. You know, like you just said, I mean, you can relate in some way. You can relate always when it's told with that level of honesty. You know, that's actually one of the shows on TV. I don't watch a lot of, and I'm going to sound like an an a-hole right now, but (laughs) I don't watch a lot of TV. Um, But I certainly don't watch a lot of network TV anymore because there's not much good on. And um, I've seen every sitcom that they've ever made and Mm -hmm. ever will make. I mean, there's just nothing new about it. And I love comedy. Yeah. But this is us. My wife and I watch it, and it's it really is one of those shows that they nail so well. Yeah. I mean, the the actors nail it, the writers nail it, the director nails exactly it. That. I mean, everything. The stars align on that show. Yeah, no, it's 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 remarkable. And I yeah, and there were so many ways they could have gotten it wrong, you know. But yeah, they, they just yeah. You know, I, I think what they they understood was that you didn't have to you didn't have to fake any of it. Yeah. yeah, and that you know, to me, that's that's what I try when I'm whenever I'm writing a piece of fiction, that's what I'm shooting for. Not that I'm saying I, I write this is us, but but right. but you know what you know when when I'm writing a piece of fiction, what I'm shooting for is the honesty of the emotion, and not ever you know if if it feels fake to me, um, yeah, then I've got to I've got to start over. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just can't. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to ever create a, a situation just because. Oh, maybe somebody will cry if they read this part, you know, or you know, or maybe they'll, uh, you know, feel angry if they read this part. Or something like that. I just, I just won't do it. Right. It can't. It can't be that overly intentional. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that was the. Uh, you know. Well, you know. Re- um, you know. Directors and and writers are are, um, you know, are accused of being manipulative all the time, um, and I think that term is overused, but. When it's when it's obvious what the writer is trying to pull out of you, yeah, that's bad writing. Yeah, 
Right. It, it's, it becomes too predictable. Yeah. Like, I know that this is going to happen to this person, therefore I'm just going to put the book down because I don't need to read any further. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's, yeah, I uh, could write the rest of it myself. Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's why I, I always like to, to, to find some kind of way to put a twist in there that people, mm-hmm. people don't see coming. And what drives me nuts is when, some, when somebody writes a review, this happened to me the other day, somebody wrote a review of something I, I wrote, and they just totally gave away the, the big plot oh, twist. Oh, yeah, I love that. And I'm like, guys, <laughs> can we, I mean, look, I know that everyone, you know, on Goodreads, might think that they're you know yeah. the the New York Times book review. <laughs> so thank you for the three thousand word you know summary of the novel and the big plot twist that you put in there. Right. I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, seen that seen that many times. Right. Yeah, it's, it's very frustrating. Yeah. Um, so uh, so then so you you start writing for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you get that first novel published. Okay. It, and now is that is that a, a bug that bits you and you have to live with the sting? I mean, how is the um, How long before you start the second? I started the second the day after I finished the first. Um, I was pretty convinced that that this was the next this is the next chapter of my life. Um, it turned out to be a, you know, the chapter when <laughs> there was a plot twist in <laughs> that I hadn't anticipated. But um, but I was pretty sure that um, that this is what I was going to be doing. That you know that this was you know I, I, I'd spent twenty years as a publisher. Now I'm going to be spending the rest of my professional life as a, as a writer. Um, and when the Forever Year didn't do great, and when I say it didn't do great, it really didn't do well at all. Um, then the publisher was way more uh, skeptical about the second book. They bought the second book, um, and they published the second book, but they um, they really weren't excited about it. And by that point, I was already writing a book three, you know, and thinking, you know, okay, well, you know, well, you know, this is just not the right publishing house. And, oh, actually, the, the other thing that had happened was, for whatever reason, my agent had made a very sizable deal in Germany for my, for my novels. Um, for the first two novels. So, like, Lou Aronica and David Hasselhoff, both very exactly big in Germany. Exactly that. Exactly. Both I used very to call big. myself the David Hasselhoff <laughs> of fiction, in fact. Um, and so I was doing significantly better in Germany than I was doing in the U.S., which actually was, you know, beneficial because I at least could get an event, you know. So if I couldn't put a deal together in the U.S., I could, I could, get, a, I could get enough money to write the book he, um, you know, in, in Germany and, and hope that something would happen down the road in the U.S. Um, and that was, you know, that, 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 that's another story for, uh, for, for, for later in, in this conversation. But, the, but the, the thing that happened around the same time was um, another agent came to me and said, um, you know, I've got somebody that I'd like you to work with. And, you know, I had, you know, I, I thought, yeah, I don't really want to collaborate on fiction. You know, that's not very much money. So no, no, it's, you know, it, it's a 16-year-old girl who um, has sent a million letters to the, the troops overseas. And um, I think you should help her write her story. I said, I don't, I don't do that. <laughs> and he said, yeah, but you probably should. <laughs> and so, you know, so I met with her and she was great and I you know, really liked her family, and so you know, I thought, okay, I'll I'll give this a shot, and you know, and we sold that book to Doubleday, and it was like, oh, okay, so this is another thing that I can do. I can I can also write nonfiction, 
And then the nonfiction thing started to take off. And you know, a couple, you know, right right after that, I, I wrote a book called The Culture Code, and that book was a national bestseller, and and you know, and and really it could still sells. I still get royalty checks on that book today. Um, and that became you know, a, a path that was really working for me. And you know, I, I wrote one novel and put it on the shelf, and then I wrote another novel and put it on the shelf, and. And yet, I was selling nonfiction books on a regular basis, and I sold, sold a book called um, called The Element with with Cam Robinson, and that book became a New York New York Times bestseller. And and I was thinking, okay, well, maybe the way the story was supposed to go <laughs> was that you know he he dabbles in in fiction, and and his real career is in non in writing nonfiction, which was a total surprise for me. And it was sort of that for for quite some time, um, and. The last significant German deal I got was for a novel that I couldn't give away here. Um, and and it was the most important thing I had ever written to me. I mean, it was, it, you know, it was, it was, it was a book, it was, it was such a ridiculous thing because I started, the inspiration for the book was that my, my oldest child was going to college. Mm-hmm. And I was totally freaked out about that. And I knew that I couldn't, write a novel about a father being freaked out about his daughter going to college because it's mawkish as hell. Right. <laughs> um, and nobody cares. Um, so I, I substituted every element of the, of the story and it became, a, um, it became a fantasy story and it became... The, and, and I also had wanted to write about divorce for a long time and, and um, you know, so it was a divorce story and... And it was a, a, a daughter, a father and a daughter who, um, who had become estranged over the course of, of the divorce, but had this 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 invented bedtime story world, sort of like you and mm-hmm. your kids and the balloon. Um, this invented you know bedtime story world that they had once you know reveled in, that they would you know create a new story about it every night and that sort of thing, and. What happens when that world comes to life? Wow! And th- and that novel was I, I was just absolutely convinced that I had to write this book. Um, and fortunately, my German publisher gave me a, a decent advance for it. And and so I just wrote it. And again, couldn't find you know couldn't find a publisher for it. Um, but around that time, Amazon came out with the Kindle, and um, and publishing it myself became a realistic option, and so I did. Yeah. And uh, and to, to this day, the novel's called Blue, and and to this day, it's to me, to me the best novel I've I've written, best anything I've written. Um, and it was, you know, it, it became, you know, it was a very successful publication. Uh, and once the Kindle happened, fiction happened for me again because yeah. then it wasn't about um, it wasn't about trying to find a publisher. Anymore, it was about just you know writing the books as well as I could, publishing them exactly the way I would publish them, right? Um, and you know, and and hoping that the audience would would show up, and you know, and, and you know, that's been you know, that piece of it has has been great. You know that you know they, they tend to do pretty well, and um, you know, and you know they get well reviewed, and 
you know, and, and the audience shows up. You know, you know, on the one hand, it's like, you know, you, uh, every, everything is on you. 100% of it is on you, yep. you know, because you're responsible not only for the story, but everything else that goes right, with it, you know. Crazy marketing tricks. Yeah. And, and there's no filter there of someone to tell you, hey, this isn't good enough for us to publish. I mean, right. it really right. is on... On you, it is a huge issue, and that was you know one of you know because I I'd been I'd spent so many years preaching to writers that you always have to work with an editor. Yeah, you know you always have to have somebody somebody that you can't possibly see where where the flaws are yourself. Yeah, um, and then suddenly I was finding myself in the position of of going against that that advice. Now I always I always had an editor. Yeah, on hand because it would it would be crazy to just. Put the, the books out without that. Yeah. Um, but in terms of you know of identifying whether there was an audience, it would, that was all on me. Which you know it was a whole lot harder when you're talking about your own work than it is about anybody else's. Yeah. It's hard to be. It's hard to be objective about. Impossible, it. really. Um, and and then you know all of the you know all of the other stuff that I didn't really ever have to do. I mean, I had departments that did that. You know, I didn't know anything about generating publicity other than asking the publicity director to generate right. it. You know, I didn't know anything about, about marketing other than, you know, than doing the same with the marketing director and, and you know, and sales and, and all of that. And, and, you know, self-publishing really is about, you know, mastering all of those skills or knowing the right people to, to right. tap to, to do it for you. Yeah, it's, it's almost like, I, I don't know what the right percentage is, but... Under fifty percent is actually writing it. Oh yeah, and then the rest of it is how am I going to promote it and how am I going to get it out there? Because the the one thing about the Kindle, which I I I love, I mean, I I, it allows me to read so much more than I ever did because I can read in different places. Mm -hmm. You know, I could read on the treadmill or on the right. elliptical or whatever, because it's just, it's just an easy. Yeah, you can always have a book with you, and I always have. I never, I'm never not without a book. Right. Um. But the flip side is it, it has opened the door for so many oh, you know, yeah. other people who oh. write to to publish. Yes, and you know it, it's like it's like it's like YouTube for independent musicians. Yep. Um, just because you have a platform doesn't mean you should necessarily always use it. <laughs> but but it creates this you know you know it's 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 very democratic. Anyone can publish on it. Mm-hmm. So cutting through the clutter of all of that. Is even harder, I think, than, oh, yeah. than it ever was before. Oh, it's it's overwhelmingly harder, and and actually, it's become equally difficult for traditionally published authors as well because of that. You know, the thing that the 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 thing that we always felt, you know, when I was on on the corporate side of of book publishing, the thing that we always felt about self published authors was that they didn't matter because. You could tell, you know, if you walked into a bookstore, you could tell if you know if by some chance that book got into the bookstore in the first place. Um, you know, you could tell the difference between a self-published book and a, a book that Random House published. The the one of the you know the great tyrannies of the business now is that you can't. Yeah, and you know it it you know costs nothing to get a really good cover for your book. You know, it costs nothing to you know to. You know, to hire somebody if you if you don't have the skill yourself to hire somebody to write a good description for you and that sort of thing, and so your really awful book sits up against somebody's really good book, and in a lot of ways the is that my phone? 
It could be. It sounds like a piano. <laughs> um, in a lot of ways, the audience can't tell the difference until they dig in themselves. And I think there are two problems with that. One is that um, it allows bad stuff to ha- gain equal footing with good stuff, and that was always the publisher's job, was to separate the, you know, the bad stuff from the good stuff. Um, and also, sorry, I'm just going to move. And also, it, um, bad stuff, the publisher's <laughs> main job was to separate right. the good stuff and the bad stuff. Right. But that was it. It, it but, but also, it sort of lowers the bar for the reader. And I think that, you know, and, and I think you know, this is this is true in all, um, you know, entertainment forms. But the the if if somebody if if somebody is only given lots of mediocre material, or is regularly given enough mediocre material, then there is a really good chance that they'll either stop because it's not the you know the medium isn't providing the the charge that they want anymore or they'll just lower their standards yeah and i think that's really bad either of those things is terrible you know obviously if you lose a reader that's horrible you know people you know if somebody just decides i don't want to read anymore because i never get anything out of it that's the worst case scenario but but you know right there is is the scenario where they just sort of accept less and you know that was you know one of the things that i find stunning about the whole self-publishing world um, is that a lot of it is driven by it, it's it's driven by gaming the system. You know, it's, you know the yeah. peop, the people who are hugely successful at it tend to be, and this is an over an overstatement, but but a lot of them are people who are good at things that are other than writing. You know, they're they're good at. You know, at at playing the algorithm, or they're they're good at you know at, at building a, a an email list, or they're they're good at um, you know at, at just manipulating the the you know the the marketing forces out there to uh, to their advantage. And one of the things that happens is that there are the the system rewards people who churn out material. I was at a I was at a conference a couple of years ago, and and there was a, a very successful romance writer up up at the, at the podium talking about how you know ideally you would publish between six and ten books a year. How do you do that? Well, you do it if you're typing. <laughs> you know, basically, <laughs> you're just sitting down and typing. Right. And what a lot of of the writers who who do that do is they create some world and some set of characters, and then they just tell the same story over and over again. Yeah. And what's incredibly frustrating about that is that there are, if you look at those, you know, those people's you know, Amazon pages, you know, they've got 700 five-star reviews or something like that because there is an audience that just wants reading material. Yeah. And, you know, and these books are cheap, you know, they're 99 cents or they're $1.99 or something like that. And they just want to be. It's 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 a it's the reading equivalent of just turning on the TV and and watching whatever yeah. is on, and they're fine with that. But what it does in terms of of the rest of us, 
is drive down the expectation to the point where we actually are competing with a lot of very bad writers. Yeah. And in, if, they, if they're better at you know, positioning themselves or packaging themselves or, or just you know, putting stuff into the marketplace, they'll win. You know, it's, I think about it, and I'm sure this is an, probably an overused example, but you know, the, the whole Fifty Shades of Grey thing. <laughs> when that came out and everyone's reading it, I, I, I will admit to buying a copy mm-hmm. and, and reading it, and two chapters in, I'm like, right. this is just horrible. Like, <laughs> it just the grammar's bad, the, the writing isn't great, the characters aren't great. This, then all of a sudden we're rooting for this woman in an abusive relationship and yeah. just because the guy's a billionaire. But then she goes on to sell, you know, I don't have any... billions of dollars worth and gets a film deal and all that. Mm -hmm. And then you realize it's like, okay, just life isn't fair. (laughs) (laughs) That's like, that's a conclusion I made from that. Life isn't fair. If I, if I want to write, you know, uh, basically softcore pornography or anything involving vampires, you know, I could probably, you know, make actually a decent living writing, but, uh, yeah. Although there's, there's also a, 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 uh, there's a theory out there that I've actually seen played out a few times that if you if you don't have it in you to write that stuff you can't right you know that there is something about those books that is delivering an experience to a reader in a way that people who don't understand it can't recreate it right that so there's there's some of that but yeah. at the same time I mean the you know the you know yeah you know, I I, I yeah, you know, I knew, I know a lot of um, erotic romance writers who were just devastated by Fifty Shades of Grey because they'd been writing that book, a better version of that book for you know for the last fifteen years, and nothing happened. And then this book comes along, and you know there there are just those situations every now and then where a book teaches you a book publication teaches you absolutely nothing. And Fifty Shades was, was one of those because there was no good reason for that one. It's not like it was it was it wasn't it wasn't as an especially great version of of what it was. It, it wasn't an a, a unusual thing in any way, except for the massive audience that didn't know that this kind of thing was out there in yeah. in, in droves. And it, it, you know, it popped out in, in, you know, into the zeitgeist, and and there it was, and then it just became, you know, a, a huge, you know, cultural phenomenon. Right. <laughs> uh, but really, there was nothing to be learned from from right. from, from that. Yeah, uh, it, other it than catches, life isn't fair. I think. Right, right. <laughs> it's like things catch fire, and we don't know why. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, on a much higher level, uh, the, the, you know, pe- people would always ask me about. The Harry Potter books, because again, you know, there there are plenty of teen fantasy novels featuring wizards that mm-hmm. you know, came out way before then. Um, now, I think the Harry Potter books are, are brilliant, so so I, I think J.K. Rowling deserves the huge success that she had. But the level of success is so completely out of scale with the with the rest of the book business that you know, you wonder how that happened. And and the answer is it did. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you know the, that's really the the only answer is, is that it, it happened because it did. Yeah. Um, and there's no there's no way to replicate it. There's nothing you you can't teach this at the Harvard Business School. You know, it's just there's nothing to be learned from this. It just happened. Yeah. 
It's uh, maybe you could revisit, you know, the, the culture code and, and see if there's like some cultural cue. That's maybe, maybe some... that's true. I didn't think of that. I, I, I should have should have thought of that. <laughs> some stars aligning somewhere. That yeah, uh, no, it was it was something. Yeah. Um, God, so what's uh, what's next? You have uh, you have an album out? Is that I, I see? <laughs> I, you, you've been I, I putting a lot of music out on. I, on. I am. I, I, I finally what I finally decided to do was you know uh, was to to take I you know I, I I kept writing songs all those all those years and and uh, you know I finally decided I need some form of these that's good or at least I, that's acceptable to me. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm in the process now of formally recording the, the songs and, you know, and, and, you know, and building them out to the degree that, that I, I think they should be built and, you know, and, and arranging them the way that I think they should be arranged and, and that sort of thing. And, um, and then I'm releasing them weekly on, on my blog. Yeah. Um, just to have them out there. I just thought, yeah, yeah, maybe somebody else might be interested in hearing these too. You know, I think there is, there is definitely, while only one song in the entire set, the, the set is ultimately 16 songs, and, and only one song is directly inspired by the Forever Year, the, the, in fact. Um, there is the sort of same storytelling sensibility to them that there is to um, to the books and you know and I take lyric writing very seriously so you know so so the songs are all you know have, have certain lyrical texture to them <laughs> you know there's um, you know there aren't there aren't any there aren't any dance tunes in here. <laughs> um, and yeah and I just thought yeah it's time you know I've never I've been I've been wanting to do this you know since I was you know, 13 years old, right. you know, it's time to, to put some stuff out and just see if anybody reacts. So do you have a, do you have a studio at home or where, where do. do you do the record? Is I it do a, you know, a little studio at home and, you know, and then do the, uh, you know, all, all, I play everything myself. Um, drums included? Drums included though, you know, it's, it is, uh, it's, it's drums built on the keyboard. It's not, it's not, it's not a drum machine. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally, there are no, um, there are no overdubs. I mean, I've got a big, big thing about that. You know, everything's got to be played live and it's got to be played all the way through. If it, if it can't play it all the way through, it's not a clean take. I've got to, I've got to do it again. Um, and the, I mean, the way I do the drums, cause I actually can't play, play the drums, but I have a decent sense of rhythm. Um, I just have terrible, you know, I'm not coordinated, <laughs> with the drums. but like, not angry enough, maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> Um, but what I can do is, you know, play the bass drum and then play the snare drum and then play the toms and, and then play the, the, the cymbals and that sort of thing. So I build that over, you know, six tracks. I build a drum track mm-hmm. for, for any, uh, any given song and everything else comes off the keyboard, um, except the guitar parts and the guitar parts are played on my Les Paul now. Right. There um, you go. Uh, yeah. Just released, uh, this, this, this last week was the first Les Paul, uh, performed song that, that, that I recorded, um, and you know, it, I, I like the idea of doing it. You know, I just like I like having it out there. I actually am finding you know that the you know people who read me are kind of tickled by it. Um, that you know, oh, you do this too. That's that's really interesting. You know, um, and you know, to some degree, the spirit of the of the two things aligns. You know, that the 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 you know the the, the focus on relationships, the focus on on you know on emotion. Um, that exists in the novels, certainly not in the nonfiction, but certainly in the novels, 
um, is consistent. You know, sort of runs across the the music, also. Mm-hmm. So you know, so it, it's not just uh, I'm not just using the blog, I'm not because I have it. You know, and and so I can publish music on blog. So why not put it on there? It's it's actually meant to be sort of part of the of the the conversation on the blog. Yeah. So if if the Lou Aronica who just celebrated a major milestone birthday for which he received a Les Paul, uh, if if that Lou Aronica could write a letter to that thirteen year old Lou Aronica mm-hmm. who was thinking, God, you know, maybe I'll be in a rock band, or you know, maybe at fifteen, um, maybe I'll I'll try something to do with writing. Mm-hmm. What would what would what would that letter consist of? What would you write to your younger self? Huh, that's a good question. Um, uh, first, don't panic. <laughs> that, would, that would be the first thing I, I thought. Were you? Did you panic as a kid? Were you like uh, who doesn't? <laughs> who doesn't panic? Um, yeah, and I, I think you know. I actually, I think what I probably what I probably say to myself is, you're going to get to do the things that you thought you were going to do, um, because I think it became very easy not at that 13 at 13 it was like oh of course i can do anything i want and you know of course i'm going to be a big rock star and, and that kind of thing um but i think it would have it would have been useful for me given what comes you know came in the, you know in the you know six to ten years after that you know it would have been useful for me to have have had the older me saying don't worry you get to do it you know, you, you get to do it. Things sort of play out in such a way that you that you get to do it. Um, that would have been really good to hear, you know, because there was definitely a stretch. And, you know, you, you asked about, about, you know, feeling like, you know, was there something missing? And there was definitely a stretch of my adult life where I felt, yeah, there's something, there's definitely something missing here. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that I'm ever going to get to it. You know, the, the best thing I'll be able to do is, you know, maybe, you know, Come up with bedtime stories, or something <laughs> like that, you know, or, or uh, you know, or, or you know, or, or you know, record something on my little four track machine. Right. But um, but yeah, no, I really, I really did think for for a long time that that was, and and it was upsetting. You know, it was it was hard to uh, it was hard to, to to it was hard to believe that that was how the creativity was going to play itself out. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, I see it in in my kids, and I'm sure I I, I had it in myself as well. But where, you know, one of them in particular has a dream of being, you know, a professional hockey player, a wow. professional women's hockey player. Wow. And every move she makes at 15, soon to be 16, mm-hmm. is going towards that goal. And yeah. she's like scared to death that, you know, that if she doesn't get on the right team or if she doesn't, if she, if she screws up one play, mm-hmm. you know, in one shift of yeah. one game. Yeah. That you know her her dream is is over. Oh, I totally get it. I totally. Get and it's it. like I, I always want to say, hey, look, it's um, you're gonna you're gonna you may not get to do what you want to do, but you're going to be able to do. You're going to be able to get to do what you're meant to do. Right. And to me, there's there's a little bit of a difference there. Well, but- I, I I agree. And actually, I think the other thing I might have said to myself back then is, you're going to use this. It may not be the way you thought, but you're going to use this because yeah. even you know when I was, yeah, I mean, certainly on the on the writing side. I mean, I think that I was I became a good editor because I could completely sympathize with the writers because I'd been through 
the experience of of writing and finishing a book. Well, finishing in the broadest sense of the term, I got to the end. <laughs> um, and I think I actually became a really good publisher because of what I learned about putting a set together as a musician. That that was actually a, a really mm. valuable thing. You know, just things about you know working with audiences and 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 you know and the rhythm of a, of a performance and that sort of thing. All of that actually I actually used those tools as a publisher. So I think the other thing, you know, that, you know, that your daughter would probably, you know, you know, it'd be good for her, her older self to, 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 to say to her is, you know, if you care this much about this, you will find some outlet for the, the, the thing that's actually driving this. It may have nothing to do with hockey, mm-hmm. but the thing that's driving it, the thing that's underneath it is something you'll find an outlet for. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's a good point. That's a really good point Um, because a lot of the things that we think we want, especially when we're younger, um, we realize that, you know, that may not have made us exactly happy when we're older. I mean, I had that in my own life. I was supposed to be a psychologist. Like I was, I was supposed to have my PhD and, and be teaching at a university. And now I look at what that life might have been like. And I'm like, man, I'm so glad I didn't do that. (laughs) You know, part of me always wonders like what would have happened, but now Mm -hmm. it's like, and I think I could have done that, <laughs> you know, with with a you know a forty plus something's you know worldview now. It's, yeah, uh, yeah, kind of a lot, a lot different. Um, well, this was great. This is oh, great. Now, you. what's what's next? Do we have a a novel in the works? Or we have a novel in the works. Can't say very much about it right now, but but we, uh, there is a novel in the works. There actually there is actually a novel near completion, and a novel which is a collaboration. I said I don't collaborate on fiction, mm. but I do. Um, and then a, um, the, all of the parameters for, for my next solo novel <laughs> are in my head. Now it's just a, a question of finding the, the time to do it because you know, in addition to all of, all of this, I also have my publishing company, The Story Plant, which um, takes up a, a significant part of, yeah. of every day. So, um, so those things take priority. Um, and then I've got um, Ken Robinson and I have a, a nonfiction book on education coming out in March, um, and I'm currently working on another nonfiction book, um, and actually about to start a nonfiction book right after that one is finished. So, so they uh, they do line up. So you have it's all kind of it's mapped out. It's pretty well mapped out. It is. It is right. pretty well mapped out, which is kind of critical because. Uh, it's the, it's the only way to, the only way to keep uh, keep everything moving and, yeah. and everything uh, you know paying the bills. Yeah, I found that um not, not that anything I write is paying any significant bills, but um I do find that when I'm done with something, I always say to myself, I'm done for a while. Like I don't mm. I I just because it does, you know, when you when you're working, you know, a, a day job and then doing sure. this, you know, as you know it takes a a lot of time to write 90,000 words yes, or does. whatever it is, it you know, I always try and target for something like that. I always say, okay, I'm not, I'm just done. I'm done. This one is going to just be the last one for mm-hmm. a while. And then all of a sudden I'll have some experience right. and I'm like, oh crap, I have to outline <laughs> this. At least I have to outline it. Yeah. And then when I outline it, I'm like, yeah, I just wonder what that first chapter might be like. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I'm like, ooh, interesting. Right. I wonder what happens next. <laughs> and then my wife loses me and right. she's wondering where I am at 2 o'clock in the morning <laughs> and I have no idea what time it is. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I totally get it. 
So very good. Well, thank you for taking the time to, uh, to chat. This was yeah. good. Thanks. And that's it. All right. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with New York Times bestselling author Lou Aronica. You can learn more about Lou at louaronica.com. To learn about me and my books, head over to michaelcarlinauthor.com and be sure to check out my new comedic mystery, Motel California. But now, a special treat. You heard about the Les Paul Lou recently got for his big birthday? Now hear it in action on Lou's latest single, Words and Music. I hope you enjoy it. <laughs>